Let us pray. Father God, it is so good to hear laughter in your church. So good to see love shared in such a special way. So good to see your family laughing, enjoying being together, fellowshipping, but especially, Lord, coming together to worship you. Thank you for that. Lord, today is Valentine's Day. It is the day of love, but mostly, Lord, it is a reminder of the love that you have given us, an unconditional love that you pour out to us undeservingly, and we are so thankful for that. Lord, as we extend love to our spouses and loved ones, remind us of the love that you have, that we can pour out to them. And you loved us first, while we are so imperfect, help us to do the same. Help us to show the same grace. Lord, as Phil comes today to share the message that you've laid on his heart, Lord, I pray that you will melt our hearts with that message and remind us of who you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. If you brought your Bibles with you today, would you open to the Gospel of John? John chapter 13, verse 34. These are Jesus' words. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, they should be in red. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Watch this, would you? Love. 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 Love in this world is pretty messed up. It asks for a lot and it never returns the favor. Love in my world? Well, it brings more trouble than it's worth. In my world, love has felt like... Sabotage. It flees into the night. It it, it leaves at the first sign of trouble. And it never feels like I love you no matter what. Because love in my world, it leaves. And when it leaves, there's only disaster left. Oh, promise is a lot. But it doesn't deliver much. It breaks hearts. I've picked up the pieces of my broken heart one too many times. So I build walls. Love isn't worth the tears. The pain, the loneliness. The surrender. It's exhausting. Even when you try to do love right, love fails. I have made a mess out of love. What good is it? You can't help me. Why love it all? Why do I even try to love? Why sacrifice to carry the burden? Why? 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 Because there is a perfect love. Perfect love that can end the disaster. A perfect love that can heal the brokenhearted. There is a love that saved those who are dwelling in this messed up world. God tells us about it because we wouldn't recognize it if it showed up on our own doorstep. It's a love that takes its time. It's profound. It doesn't brag or badmouth. God's love is like a shield that we know will never leave us. That you can trust. Hoping. And you never, ever exhaust it. That's his kind of love. And it never fails. And while we were keeping records of wrongs and self-seeking and being unkind, he still died for us. How can I love like that? How can I love like that? How can I love like that? Because I am loved like that. I can love well, not because of me, but because he first loved me. In February of 1989, I proposed to Tina. I knew I was in love and and I wanted nothing more than to spend my life with her. She said yes, obviously. Right after that proposal, we did three things. They were very purposeful. The first one was this. We got involved in premarital counseling. A wonderful friend of ours and a great preacher named Doug Ingmeyer did that counseling. And, and boy, we have never looked back on that with anything except great fondness and appreciation. 
I encourage every couple that is looking at getting married to do the same thing. Get involved in premarital counseling. It is the best decision you will ever make, ever, bar none. A lot of people will think to themselves, premarital counseling is something that young people need to do before they get married. But if you are getting married in later, or getting married later in life, maybe even the, the second time or the third time, premarital counseling matters. It's a place where communication is opened and foundations are laid. It is also a great time. It's just fun. We, like I said, have never regretted the decision to do that. Then we found some couples that we appreciated, couples that we looked at and said, they have a godly marriage. We sat down and talked with them. We wanted to know what it was that made their relationship unique. We wanted to know how they related to each other. We had a list of specific questions that we asked them. Because they had cleared the trail that we were now on, we wanted to follow their path. At the time, we had absolutely no idea what an adventure a godly marriage really is. Nor did we have any idea how boring and impotent a godless marriage is. So we had this privilege of looking at these people that had gone before us and then following their path. Third thing we did was this. We started reading. We were entering into a covenant relationship and we wanted to learn as much as we could possibly learn about it before it ever began. Some of the books we read were gifts given to us by people that were very close to us. I received the first book my father ever gave me the week before we got married and it was on how husbands should treat their wives and what godly marriage looks like. I've received a number of books from him as gifts since that time. They are all special books to me because he was thinking about me when he picked up that book and they all have unique meanings to him as well. Now, not every one of the books that we read was a gift Some of them we went out and bought. In fact, the majority of them we went out and bought. I'll be honest with you and tell you, some of them were a great success and a wonderful blessing. Some of them were a bust. Our two favorite books were written by the same author, Charlie Shedd. They are a series of letters written to his children put into book form. When they got engaged, he wrote each one of them these series of letters, each one touching on a different topic that they would face in marriage. They are so good. They were bound together and put in book form in the 60s. We picked them up in the late 80s. Today, I would tell you that they are still our absolute favorite books for young people that are getting ready to enter into the covenant of marriage. Even though they were written in the 60s, they are that pointed and that powerful. Letters to Philip. Listen to to what's written right underneath that title on how to treat a woman. Letters to Karen is the sister book of this to his daughter. And underneath that title, it reads on how to treat a man. They're really good. After we read them and reread them and then reread them again, my wife said this to me, whatever you do, don't ever loan those out. They are so special, we want to be able to give them to our kids. I didn't listen. And I have loaned them out over and over and over again because they are that powerful. Here's the problem. Letters to Karen has not come back. My wife is not here right now, so I can share that secret with you. And I'm just asking that that you don't ever let her know that. But if you have the book or you know someone that does, you could save me a whole lot of grief if it just showed back up on my desk. They are so good. In 1991, about a year after we had read those books, Charlie Shedd wrote another book, this time from a, a unique perspective. His wife of 48 years, Martha, had died. She had a long-fought battle with cancer, and the cancer won. After he had gone through a period of grieving, Charlie decided that he would write a book called Remember I Love You. It's Martha's story. It is really good. We picked it up in 91. We read it together. We have read it many times since. About every two years or so, I just pick it up and go back through it. It is that good. Remember I Love You is the title. I want to share with you just one chapter. It's not very long, so hang with me as we go through this. It's titled, Incident at the Garage Door. Have you ever backed your car out of the garage without opening that main door? If you have, you know that there is no other feeling quite like it. Crash, smash, utter devastation. And if it should be the kind with glass windows, glass, glass everywhere. Yet even the sound of all this wreckage is minor compared to the question you're asking. How could I be so stupid? 
Was your mate watching? If not, did she come rushing from the house to see if a truck could run amok? What did she say? Comes now a moment for some special bonding, or otherwise. The first time I did it, my record is two. Martha was standing by the kitchen door to wave goodbye. Why didn't she signal me to stop? No time? I was looking at the gas gauge. Repeat, crash, smash, utter devastation. Then that sinking sensation, how could I be so stupid? Now here is Martha by my side. Are you hurt, Charlie? I am so sorry. But don't you feel bad. Remember, I love you. I've come close myself to backing through that door. I was lucky. Now let's go to work. I'll sweep up the glass. You take out the bolts. We'll undo it together. Haul it to the dump. Get it out of sight. Stop punishing yourself. Remember some of the dumb things I've done. I remembered. How could I ever forget the maiden flight of her pressure cooker lid? It was a new pressure cooker, and Martha was making one of her super, super stews. But somehow, she said later, she didn't have the lid on tight. I was back in the study when suddenly from the general vicinity of the kitchen came a sonic boom. Dashing to the rescue, I could see what had happened. Pressure cooker lid blown off, stew blown high, stew, stew everywhere. Stew all over the maker of the stew. Stew all over the kitchen floor, refrigerator, stove, cabinets. Have you ever seen carrots, potatoes, beef, plus sundry other stew ingredients embedded in a ceiling? Now, what should a husband do at a pivotal moment like this? Should he be a comedian? Way to go, baby. You've been wanting to redo the kitchen. What imagination. Superstar. Should he play the judge? How could you be so... Excellent control there, Buster. Good moment to cease and desist. Or taking a page from one loving wife in a garage door incident, should he say, put your head on my shoulder, darling, cry a little. Let's praise the Lord you weren't killed by a flying lid. Don't punish yourself. That could happen to anyone. Remember the time I fill in the blank. Looking back on our 48 years, I wish I'd always been the wisest of loving husbands. Some moments of our emergencies I'd like to have back. Why does it take so much time to learn the secret? Most of us can work our way through to what we should say if we have time, but in those smash-crash, devastating moments when a marriage bonds or rifts a little, what then? Wouldn't it be ever so fine to always have the right word for every emergency? Can we? Probably not by planning or even by rehearsal, but by being tuned into the inner presence, we can. Didn't our Lord say if we are in touch with His Spirit, it would be given to us in crucial moments what to say? This too was the Martha blessing. Automatic kindness straight from the source. That's a great quality in a person responding to big mistakes and little. It's also second to none for dumb mistakes like my backing the car through our garage door closed. Now that chapter has significant meaning for us because after we had gotten engaged, I decided on my own, I decided that Tina needed to know how to drive a manual transmission car. She never had in her life. I happened to drive one, and so I wanted her to know how to do it. She protested, saying, I'm never going to need to know how to drive this, so we don't even need to do this. I said, oh, honey, you've got to know how to drive a a manual transmission. Everybody needs to know how to do that. That's an American tradition, so I'm going to teach you. That was mistake number one. We went out to Tuttle Creek Reservoir, big open parking lot. I put her behind the wheel and told her what she was supposed to do, and she commenced to jerking us all over the parking lot. I got a little case of whiplash, but that was okay, because I was thrilled she was learning. She got things smoothed out pretty good, and I I think that probably had a lot to do with the teacher. So after everything was going well, I said, now you got to learn how to back up. She said, I don't need to know how to back up because I'm never going to drive one of these. I said, no, you need to know how to back up. So she put it in reverse and threw it into gear. The next thing we heard was crash, smash, and utter devastation. You know those little markers for parking places that are about bumper high on the average car? slammed right into one, crushed the back quarter panel, ripped off the bumper, destroyed the rear end of the car. And the worst part about it is we were now lifted about 36 inches up off the ground. And there was no hope of getting out of there. All kinds of thoughts ran through my mind. I thought, boy, I could really tell her how she should have turned around and looked. That's just part of driving. And at the same time, she was running through different ideas in her mind of what she could say to me. Like, I told you so. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of an I told you so lecture, she could have really had a good one going. But here's what happened. We hadn't even read Charlie Shedd's book at that point. Here's what took place. Both of us had one of those moments, transparent moments, where we shared a need with one another and we met the need. I looked over at my soon-to-be wife 
And she had big tears welling up in her eyes. They started to run down her cheek. And I thought to myself, now I could lecture. I could be angry because that's the predominant emotion here. My car is smashed. Or I could rise to the occasion. I rose to the occasion. I put my arm around her and I held her as she put her head on my shoulder. And she cried. And I said, don't worry about it, honey. It's, it's only a car. <laughs> so I've got my arm around her and I'm holding her. And, and that set a stage for the rest of our marriage. It's one of those pivotal moments where pendulums swing. And in this particular case, the pendulum could have swung over here where we could have set the stage for a lot of coarse conversation and a lot of accusing and a lot of attacking and we could have set a stage or, or stacked some bricks that would have led us down the road towards failure. Or we could swing the pendulum the other way where we rise to the occasion, both of us, and we set the stage or the table and stack the bricks where we're headed for success, relational success. Thankfully, it swung this way. Now, again, we've been following the patterns of some people that had gone before us and premarital counseling been helping with some things like that so that we understood what it meant to meet each other's needs in the moments where it was most crucial. And folks, in crucial moments in love relationships, we decide a course towards success or failure. And it is a conscious choice. We can pay attention to those choices and make our way through life doing our best to make the best decisions we can in the moments when we are faced with them. And as Charlie Shedd would say, in those moments, trusting the Holy Spirit that lives within us to guide our words and our actions, or we can trust only ourselves in love relationships and pay the price for it, deal with the consequences of it. Sadly enough, in today's world, more people are choosing that path towards failure because of selfishness than they are choosing the path towards success because of conscious choices made to honor God. But we can change the course of even that trend by figuring out what love looks like. You heard when we read from John chapter 13 just a few minutes ago, Jesus has given us a new pattern of love. All we have to do is follow it. It's that simple. All we have to do is follow it. Even in the closest of love relationships, we can follow the pattern laid out in the Bible and we can swing the pendulum towards success. It is really that simple. The Apostle Paul would say this about how we do it. They're what we refer to as the absolutes of love. If you've been with us the last four or five weeks, you've heard us talking about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. The apostle would say, speaking of love, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's just good teaching. I want to grab the last one of those, love never fails, and wrap this whole series together today. So that's where we're going to head. Paul says, love never fails. In order to understand that, it becomes somewhat imperative for us to define what love is once again. So let's do that. In the culture that we live in today, here's how love, more often than not, gets defined. Young man sees a young lady and he thinks, gosh, I'd like to spend time with her. So he does whatever he can possibly do to get to know her just a little bit so that he's confident she'll say yes when he asks her out on a date. He finds bolsters up within himself all of the courage that he needs, whether it came from outside or inside. He gets all that courage, asks her to go out on a date. They share a meal together. And in the world's description of love, right after that meal, they end up going to bed with one another. That's the world's description of love. And maybe somewhere between dinner and the bedroom, those words are shared between them. I love you. Really, though, what they are dealing with is not love. When they made their way from dinner to the bedroom on that first date, second date, third date, any time prior to marriage, what they were giving in to was infatuation, not love. And there's a big difference. Infatuation has been defined this way. It is an instant desire. That's all it is. So these people out on their first date that make that move from dinner in the restaurant to the bedroom have really just found themselves succumbing to nothing more than infatuation, an instant desire. We could apply it this way. When I'm driving around on a, a car lot and I see a truck that really appeals to me, like, oh, say, a 2016 Power Stroke, I'm just grabbing something randomly. I see that truck and I use words like this, boy, I love that truck. 
All I'm communicating is an instant desire for that truck. It's an infatuation. Or when we're walking around Cabela's the other day and I see a particular gun that, that really captures my attention, I say, gosh, I love that rifle. I love that shotgun. I love that pistol. All I'm communicating is an instant desire for that firearm. That's all it is. Same thing could apply to banana cream pie. I could say, I love banana cream pie. I'm communicating an instant desire for that pie. I've not thought about any part of that. I have not considered the ramifications of it. I have no history with it, none whatsoever. It is an instant desire solely for that. Well, with that truck, had I thought through all of it, I would know very quickly I can't afford the payments. If I was to do this, it's going to get us in financial trouble. This is a bad decision. I don't love that truck. I have an instant desire for it. It's just an infatuation. It is not a love relationship. Same thing with the gun and even the banana cream pie. Before I grab the fork and go to work on that pie, I need to think about the ramifications of what's going to happen after eating it. All it is is an infatuation. That's it. Well, given the scenario that we had just put together of this young man and this young woman, when they gave in to the infatuation, more than anything, what we had there besides a love relationship were two sets of hormones calling to one another that led them into bed. That was it. It was an instant desire that they chose to gratify. That is not a love relationship. The Bible shows us something different. Go with me to the book of 1 John, would you? The first of John's three letters at the end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Now follow what John's teaching. Real love, true love, is a sacrificial love that looks at other people more than it looks at ourselves. Look at God's love for us. He saw us in our need and he chose to meet the need. It is a sacrificial, selfless love. So John goes on to say, now just love other people the same way. That's all you have to do. Just love people the way God has loved you. Verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now that's real love. That's what the Lord wants us to grab hold of, not just in our relationship with Him, but in every other love relationship we have. As God has loved us, we're to love other people. Remember the two greatest commandments from Jesus' mouth Himself. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we start to grow in love relationships, first with God and with other people, that selflessness has to kick in, where we see their needs over ours where we're able to selfishly give up some of the things that we would want to hold on to. That is a mature love. Sadly enough, in our culture and society today, an infantile love is the love that has permeated everything that has ever happened. An infantile love is the one that remains very immature, only concerned about self, with no vision for the other person whatsoever. So let's take the, the young couple again. That young couple says, I love you because you love me enough to do the things that I want you to do for me. Now, in the beginning, 
that's the place most love relationships start. But if it remains there, it remains an immature love. The same thing happens with God. Do you hear what John said in verse 19? Take a look at this again. We love because he first loved us. Infantile love. Now, obviously, it's a good love in our relationship with God. We look at what God has done for us, and that's the starting point of the relationship. He has forgiven my sins, and he has offered me eternity. That's an infant relationship with God. Through his son, Jesus Christ, we're able to say, I love him because that's what he brings to the table. That's what he offers me. But a mature love, as it grows up, says that I love God not because of what he has done for me or the fact that he has loved me first. Rather, I love God because of who he is. Does that make sense? That's a mature love. Well, the same thing is true in every other love relationship we have. I love you because I'm attracted to you. I love you because of the things that you have done for me and the ways that we have connected. But as we mature through the love relationship, we have to get to a place where we're able to say, I love you not just for those reasons, but I love you because of who you are. I love you because of who God made you to be. I love you with all of the challenges that maybe you face. And I love you because of all the blessings that you bring to me. And I want to do life with you. That's a love relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul describes what love looks like between a husband and wife, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to present her to himself holy and blameless, without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish. Husbands, you have the same responsibility to see the stains, wrinkles, and blemishes in your wife and love her through them in such a way that the stains get cleaned up, the wrinkles get ironed out, and the blemishes disappear. And wives, you have the same responsibility. You have a responsibility within the love relationship to love the other person unto a place where you can present them holy before God. Man, that's a love relationship. So that means we have to say, I love you not just because of what you bring to the table, but rather I love you for who you are, mature faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's flip back there real quick. God would give us this teaching. This is verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Interesting that that's right in the middle of the love chapter. So Paul's teaching, God is teaching through Paul, that we have to grow up in our walk with God so that we put away some of the childish things, the childish desires, and get to a place where we can really say to God himself, I love you because of who you are. Same thing applies in every other love relationship we have. We need to be able to look at the person for who they truly are, look at the history of the relationship, put it all together, and say, we have a mature love relationship. People struggle to do that with Jesus, so we struggle to do it in human relationships as well. That's been going on since the writing of the New Testament. Go with me to the book of Matthew, would you? Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now follow what's happening. The Pharisees were saying, teacher, Jesus, what we want from you are more miracles. Do something cool again. Jesus, pull a rabbit out of your hat. Why don't you park that water? Why don't you heal somebody that's sick? Show us again. Show us again. We want this emotional high all the time in our walk with you. We want to live from one miracle to the next. Show it to us again. And Jesus stopped, not even short of saying to them, you wicked generation. Do you not understand that I'm not going to show you any more miracles because you don't understand? You need to see me for who I am. And I love the way that he used the the sign of Jonah here. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'll be in the belly of the ground for three days. You need to love me for who I am, not just what I can do. You need to love me deeply. You need to love me with a mature love rather than this infantile, immature love. 
Now that is patterned in our walk with God. So it shouldn't be a stretch for us to see the ways that it is patterned in our walk with other people. Let me illustrate for you. Now let's say that young man meets a young woman and they decide that they want to do things the right way. So they head out on a date and it's a pretty good one. This is where they met. Everything's going really good, and and they decide there's going to be a second date, and a third date, and a fourth date, and so on. And so they just keep meeting together. There's all kinds of different experiences during that time, and they're really great experiences. They're moving from one experience to the next, and that's the pattern of their relationship. Until finally he says, well, gosh, I'm going to propose because I love her. So he musters up the courage to do that, and he proposes, and they decide that they're going to get married, and they set the date way up here. And they continue to progress towards that date, one experience after the other. And some of them, even though they can be a challenge because of the freshness of their love, it's still this real exciting thing that allows them to continue to to be on this upward trending path. And then the, the day of the wedding comes and everything is perfect. It's all about them. The day is everything that they had hoped it would be. It was everything that they had planned. Then from there, they just start doing life together. And they start experiencing a few other things that maybe take them down a a downward trending period in the relationship. There might be something that causes it to spike back up and different experiences in here that, that will lend itself to that. And then as they continue to do life, they fall back down in a downward trend because there's experiences that cause it. On and on and on this goes. There's peaks and there's valleys, but all the way through it, you can kind of see this downward trend. The expectation of love relationships in the year 2016 is this. You're going to reach the pinnacle of your love relationship at the point of your wedding. You want to know how I know that? I've sat with couple after couple after couple in my office, and I have asked them to illustrate the highs and lows of their marriage and identify the best moment in their relationship, and they pinpoint this. And from there... It slacks down all the way down to wherever they're at, oftentimes in extreme brokenness. Well, you might remember from John chapter 13 that Jesus came to show us a different form of love. That different form of love could be illustrated this way. It's a line that stays right above that great moment. Oh, it has a few highs and lows, but they're pretty well minimized because we are walking through life with Jesus wrapped around us. We're walking through life doing it the way he wants us to. John chapter 10 actually shows us how this works. Turn there with me. John chapter 10, verse 10. Gospel of John, not the letters of John. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I want you to follow what Jesus is offering. He's saying, I have come that you might have this kind of life and have it to the full. The thief that comes to steal and destroy offers you this, a downward trending life in love relationships. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That means you can live up here. You can live this way. Isn't that encouraging? And remember, that is patterned by him. So there have to be passages of scripture that demonstrate that for us. Interestingly enough, there are. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 Verse 5. I'm going to read for you part A and B. Part A, we're not going to ignore. It has great teaching in it, but part B, I really want you to grab. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That last part's what I want you to hear. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Here's the beautiful part of that God says, that No matter what happens, never will I leave you. I'll be right there with you. No matter what happens, I will never forsake you. You can trust me. The never is an absolute of the Bible. Never will I leave. There are different times throughout Scripture where we could easily hear God saying, what part of never do you not understand? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Apostle Paul would say this of God's love. God's love never fails. God's love never fails fails because he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now that's the last of the absolutes, the four absolutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If we want to figure out how to apply that in earthly relationships, we have to go back to the first of the absolutes. So flip back over to 1 Corinthians 13. 
verse 7. My Bible says it. Paul is talking when he says it about love. Love always protects. If we're going to experience one of these never will I leave you, never will I forsake you type of relationships that never fails, we have to come to terms with the safety and the protection that is afforded us in that first absolute. Love always protects. It's a place where you're safe. It's a place where emotionally and intellectually and physically and financially and spiritually you are safe. Love always protects so that it will never fail. Love always applies the absolutes building to this one so that we can say without the shadow of any doubt, love never fails. And it is so hard to forsake this protecting side of it. I had it illustrated for me in the most poignant of ways just this week while I was putting this message together. Follow me through the illustration. It's a little bit goofy, but follow me through it. Tina and Katie are gone to Kansas right now. Katie is interviewing for a scholarship at the Bible college she's going to go to this fall. So they flew down there yesterday to do that, um, today and tomorrow, and then they fly home Tuesday morning. When they were looking at going, when Katie got the invitation to come and everything was in place and they got on the internet and started looking at tickets, Katie said to me, well, Daddy, are you going to come? And I said, honey, I can't come. I have too much going on right now. I can't get away and I'm just too busy. I can't pull it off. And she said, but I really want you to come. And I said, well, I can't go and, and that's just not going to work. It'll be a great time for you and your mom. And I'm glad the two of you are going to be able to go and, and I'll be praying for you while you're gone. We had all those conversations. We really did. Over the course of the weeks after that, she had asked me a couple times about coming and let me know that she wanted me to be there. And I told her again the same things that I had told her beforehand. Well, this past Monday, I got to thinking, gosh, I, I, maybe I should go. And I told Tina, I'm going to get online and I'm going to see if, if there are still some cheap tickets available. So I did. Found out that there were some cheap tickets. I thought about flying down there with them and being a part of what was going on. But not really. Because Monday morning, my decision now to go with Katie to interview for the scholarship, and I, I'm just being as honest as I can possibly be with you. Here's a moment of transparency. You're going to see your preacher for who he is. Had nothing to do with Katie. You see, snow goose season opened in Nebraska this week. <laughs> On Facebook, I have a friend, Rich Kendall. He is the grandson of Richard Kendall. I have many remembered hunts with Rich. On Monday, he was posting pictures of cyclones, of snow geese coming into his blinds. He was taunting me with Facebook posts and text saying, Oh, Phil, you ought to be here. You ought to be here. And I was thinking, Yeah, I ought to be there. So Monday morning, I started thinking, I could fly down there. We'll get the car. I'll drop them off in Kansas. And then I'm going to run for the border. And I'm headed for Nebraska. And even if I only get to hunt for a day, day and a half, that's okay. I'll go back and pick them up. We'll swing back up to the airport. And it'll be a fantastic experience. The problem is, I was writing this message right at that exact same time. And here's what I determined. The moment I had pulled the trigger, not on my shotgun, but I pulled the trigger to go down there with her, love would have failed. Because I was telling her I want to come with her, and I was using her, only using her as a means to an end, and love would have failed. And it would have failed epically, epically. As we were talking about it on Friday, driving over to Spokane, I was telling her the whole story and everything that had been going through my mind and the, the whole message. We were talking about different portions of this, and, and I said, love would have failed. And you know what my little baby daughter said to me? She said, yes, it would have. That's convicting. Yes, it would have. Now, she had seen another illustration of that just about this time a year ago. Her, Tina's, actually, parents were celebrating their 50th anniversary we had made plans to go down there and be a part of that, and Tina was doing the whole celebration for them and putting it all together, and so everything was set. We went a week early so that Tina and Katie would be able to get everything squared away, and again, in all honesty, so Eli and I could be in Nebraska hunting geese with Rich. And so Eli and I were up there. We spent all week long, four days, Tuesday to Friday, laying on the frozen ground, not seeing a goose. All day long, day after day after day. Everything was frozen solid. The geese were hung up 10 miles south of us. You could actually see them on radar. We knew where the geese were at. 
there were people from here, guys from here that had traveled down there to be a part of that hunt. Our whole plan was that Eli and I would hunt Tuesday to Friday, and then we would go Friday night to Council Grove, Kansas, where we would be available to help on Friday with some things that the family needed help with. When you live 1,600 miles away and you need to be able to help people out, you have to be very purposeful about it. So we had planned to be there on Saturday. The geese were coming on Saturday morning. So the guys were saying, oh, you can stay, just stay. The guys from here said, we're staying. Phil, Eli, you got to stay and hunt with us. Eli and I were really wrestling with the whole thing. Do we stay because the geese are going to be here tomorrow morning? We could be there by 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. I could call Tina and tell her we're going to stay and hunt. But the problem is, had I done that, she would have been accepting of it because that's who she is, but love would have failed. It would have failed her, and it would have failed her parents. Love never fails. So Eli and I had made the decision to leave Friday after everything was done, after it was dark. We loaded everything up and we headed to Kansas and we did what was right. And all Saturday morning, I kept getting pictures from God-fearing people, (laughs) living Montana, of the geese that were falling all around them. It's okay, I pray for them and their salvation is still intact. The whole point is this. If we'd have broken our word, love would have failed. If we'd have not shown up, love would have failed. And love never fails. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Because when God makes a promise to us, He follows through with it. That was true in salvation, and that's true in everything else. And if we're going to love people the way God loved us, we followed the same pattern, and love never fails. It can be hard at times. Selfishness can come into play, and our own motives and our own desires, and even our own infatuations come into play. And if we have refused to grow up in the love relationship, we're going to make failing decisions over and over and over again until eventually the bricks are stacked in such a way that love cannot succeed and it fails. That even happens in the church, that even happens as people walk with Christ. They get to a place where they have stacked the bricks in such a way that they believe that God's love failed them and God's love never fails, not ever. But they believe that it has because their selfish motivations and their momentary desires, their infatuations have caused them to fall short of understanding the love relationship. How tragic that is. Well, then we apply the same thing in other relationships where people fail to grow up and an infantile love governs everything. And the bricks are stacked so that success is impossible and it would appear that love fails. I want to make sure that we answer a question for people that are sitting in this room right now wondering about what happens when those bricks are stacked that way. I want to make sure that we cover this because I'd be remiss as a preacher if we didn't. So here we go. As we close this out, and we're almost done, I just want you to know that, that there are biblical answers even in that situation. Sometimes it might appear that love has failed, that love relationships have crumbled. I learned a few weeks ago from a, just a wonderful godly lady in this church. She was talking with me after we started this series of, of messages, sharing with me some of her own hurts and some of her own experiences, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't. She said when she was dealing with a failed marriage, and it was very difficult, very painful, and very hurtful, she was wrestling with it against this passage of Scripture, the one we just read. So she chose to go talk to her godly mother, and she shared with her mom everything that was going through her mind. And she said, Mom, how does this work? Love never fails, and here it has. And her mother, in this moment of Holy Spirit wisdom, this is, this is nothing short of God-inspired, said to her, Honey, love didn't fail. You did, but love didn't fail. Now, that's good teaching. That is really good teaching. When we begin to look at love relationships that way and we want to blame love for failure, it had nothing to do with love. It had to do with choices that we make, and we have to own those choices. If you were to go back with me to Genesis chapter 3, here's what you would discover. That is the birthplace in Scripture for sin. That's where Adam and Eve made their decision, and don't make any mistake about it. They made a decision for sin. It is also the birthplace of the consequences of sin, first individually. You see them laid out in Genesis chapter 3 beautifully. Those consequences are this. They chose blame and hiding in order to try to cover their sin. When God came looking for them in the garden, they were literally physically hiding from God. Have you ever hidden your sin? 
Now be honest about that, just in your own mind. Have you ever hid from your sin? Most of us do. That was the pattern established all the way back in the Garden of Eden. They were hiding because of their sin. The Bible says they were ashamed of it. And when God came and confronted them, the first choice they made was to blame somebody else. Adam said, she made me do it. Eve said, the devil made me do it. And the pattern for blame was established. And the consequences for sin were established in Genesis chapter 3. It is there that we hear God saying to man, your toil, your pain in trying to survive is going to be greatly increased. As you work the land, it is going to be difficult because of your sin. He said to the woman, your pain in childbirth is going to be greatly increased because of your actions in the garden, your choice for sin. Those are the consequences. Now, here's what I have found through a lot of time spent in the counseling office. Most people want to believe that one of the consequences or the effects of sin all the way back to the Garden of Eden was the removal of free will. That did not happen. That is not one of the consequences or the effects of sin. God left free will intact. So in broken relationships today, what we see is a collision of two people with the same will, the same free will. They both have independent abilities to make decisions and choices, and sometimes those are a collision. So one person will find out from the other person that the relationship is over, and and they'll come to the church, maybe talk with me, maybe talk with Dini or Matt or or with one of our elders or a, a decision counselor, and they'll say, I just want you to pray with me that God will change their mind. You know what my answer is every time? I cannot pray that because God does not take away anybody's free will. I will pray that God will open up their eyes to see what is right. I will pray that God will stir their soul to do the right things, but I cannot pray that God will remove their free will. He has never removed free will and he doesn't remove free will. It's intact. And sometime within brokenness, what we see is a collision of that. And when those choices come together, sometimes we don't have control over what the other person does. What we do have control over is what we do. And we have to pay attention to that. So a lot of times I'll point people to this passage, book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus is writing a letter to a church that he loves. It's in Ephesus. He says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now here's Phil's paraphrase of what he's saying. You are doing life on this path. That's why you're you're just going through the motions. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do, and it's leading you down a path that you don't want to be on. So change the course of it and remember what you did at first and do it again. Get invested in the relationship again. Start working hard at it. Remember your first love so that you can live this. Because this is not what God wanted. This is. And here's the path to get to it. Remember what you did at first. If that doesn't work, and sometimes it doesn't, because there is a collision of free will, and God doesn't remove it from either side. Now, God does what God does. He will convict. He will inspire. He will stir. And if their heart is open, that can actually cause great things to happen within a person's life. But if it's not and they choose to remain infantile and immature, then there's another passage that you need to hear. It's found in the book of 1 John. We are almost done. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So here's what we do. We accept responsibility for the brokenness. We repent of it. It's a great gift. God has given us this gift of repentance. 
We tell the Lord and, and whoever else is in the relationship, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want to live that way. In essence, what we find is a gigantic reset button that we get to push. And with God, it works for us. We get to push that button and He forgives us. And in earthly relationships, it works too. We get to push that button. That's repentance. And we start over. And we do it again. And we do it in a God-honoring way. And that's the key to it. My friend taught me that love never fails. Sometimes we do. But God said He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And He'll walk right through it with us. Trust that. Trust that. And maybe at the end of all of it, all you need to do is really change how you pray. I want you to listen to this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 was teaching the disciples how to pray. It is so important how this starts. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what he's saying? We don't have to wait until heaven to live the way that God wants us to. It can happen right here. So we have to start praying, Lord, your will be done here and in heaven. Your kingdom come here that I might live the right way and experience your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy and what true love really is, a love that never fails. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, we've covered a lot of territory in this message. I hope not too much, but we've covered a lot. As we look at it measured against Scripture, we can see what the Bible teaches us about this mysterious relationship that you have given us. You call it that. It's a mystery. Lord, it's an exciting one. It's one that sets us up to, to be able to succeed where the world fails time and time again. Thank you for the teaching that you've given us in Scripture for it. Thank you for allowing us to see it. But most of all, thank you for patterning it in each of our lives. Lord, without you, we would just be nothing. Without you, we would be hopeless. Without you, we would be on a path of destruction. Father, in the the opposites of that, we find that there is great hope and there is great victory. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.